and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hey, hey guys, welcome back for episode number 80. I hope you've had a fabulous week since our last pod. This episode, I am pumped to introduce you to Simon Rennie who shares with us today his experience of living with undiagnosed OCD. It was not until he was 28 that he started to uncover what has been going on for him. Over the next hour, we break down some of the misconceptions of OCD and discuss the different themes that can develop. Simon so honestly shares with us some of his challenging moments throughout therapy and how he's been able to find ways to manage and navigate his OCD. He is a husband a dad, and the host of the sensational podcast, Mindful Men, that I strongly encourage all of you to jump over and check out. I love the work that he does. So let me introduce you to the man himself, Simon Rennie. Welcome, Simon, to Challenges That Change Us. Thank you so much for coming on today. Ali, thanks so much for having me. Really excited to be here and share my story. I love, Simon, to start every episode with asking our guests what animal best describes them and what is it in particular about that animal that came to mind? Good question. Two come to mind. So the first one that came to mind was the Tassie Devil and the one from the cartoon character where he's thrashing around, he's grunting to himself, he's causing mayhem. And the reason being is that my story is a mental health story. So I'm often feeling like that on the inside and not so much on the outside though. Well, the second animal that came was my old dog, Wally, who was a cavoodle, brown, fluffy, curly thing. But he also had his own anxiety challenges as well. And so he was medicated with Prozac for a couple of years Super anxious dog, but really cuddly and huge personality. So kind of a mix of the two. Haven't had a Tassie devil. When you said that, I was like, oh, what are those characteristics? Like just the name in itself sounds so fierce, I reckon. Absolutely. And we, we lived in Tassie for a while as well. So my wife's from Hobart and I'm not from Tassie, but we did live there. So I, I have a little bit of a Tassie connection too. So I always like to, to plug Tassie wherever I can. Do you see them in the wild down there or are they still sort of you only see them in captive? I didn't see. We lived in Hobart, so we lived in suburbia, but I have heard of them being in the wild, but they're mostly, I, guess, I believe, don't quote me on this, anybody from Tassie, mainly in captivity because there's a lot of disease in the Tassie devil population as well. So they're trying to eradicate that as best as they can too. I sometimes think this question at the beginning of our podcast really gives away my general knowledge of the world because sometimes I'm like, so what happens here and how do animals do this? And (laughs) it's like, yeah, so everyone listening, clearly I'm still learning and I learn so much from every guest that comes on. Simon, but today you already mentioned it, like we are coming on today to have a really honest, raw and real conversation around men's mental health, which is a space that you're working in. But Today's about you and about your story and what has kind of led you to where you are today. So I'm thinking the best place to start might be back at the beginning. Like when did you start to notice? What did you start to notice? What did that look like? 
Yeah, so so I'm a social worker. So contact is huge in, in everything I talk about. It's all around understanding not just the situation but the life and the community around that as well. It's really important. And so I grew up in the 80s and 90s and a little bit of the noughties in Adelaide, South Australia. So the northern suburbs of Adelaide, so if anyone who's listening doesn't know what that's like, it's lower socioeconomic, there's pockets of welfare, it's manufacturing, it's people in the trades, it's, it's, there's not a huge amount of wealth in that area. And in the 80s and 90s, you know, all, we didn't have internet, we didn't have smartphones, we didn't have social media and all that type of stuff. And so the things that made me feel like, okay, I'm a boy and I'm going to be a man when I'm older is, is the, the people and the people around me. So I had three brothers. We were very hyper-masculine families. We did a lot of sport, a lot of Aussie rules. And also what we watched on TV. So me and my brothers were into wrestling. We were into watching The Terminator and Die Hard and Rambo and all these hyper-alpha male stuff. And so this is kind of like the persona that I took on as a, as a young boy growing up in, in northern Adelaide. But around eight years old, I developed this thing called obsessive compulsive disorder, which at the time I didn't know what that was and I didn't know what that was until I was 28 when it was actually diagnosed. But it all started in the schoolyard. I was in primary school and a student came up to me and said, Simon, if you stop using your voice for more than a minute, you're going to lose your voice forever. And for anyone who's thinking, oh, OCD, what's, what's this got to do with losing your voice? And a lot of people think of OCD as just being a, a neat freak and cleaning your house and making, if you've got a desk, it's all neat and tidy. And it's funny that I mentioned Tassie Devil before because I'm not a neat freak. My house just looks like a bomb's hit it. I've got two kids and I couldn't care less about that because that's not necessarily what OCD is. So for anyone listening who's, who's this is the first time they've heard the word OCD, what it is is an obsessive thought comes in your mind, that's the O in OCD, and it creates a huge amount of anxiety and distress. And for most people, they can let that go. They don't have to think about it. So that thought for me was losing my voice forever. But in the OCD world, the only way to, to alleviate that distress that's coming from the thought is to perform a compulsive act or a compulsive behaviour. And so for me, that was humming to myself every minute of every day, for about two years, I would do a little hum to myself just to check that my voice was there. And you can imagine what that feels like for an eight-year-old boy to do that, but to also do that in silence. Nobody ever knew I was doing it. So it's, it's, it's like tiny. It's like, hmm, mm, that kind of thing. Really tiny. It's almost internalized. I mentioned this within the context of the 80s and 90s because nobody talked about mental health back then. At all. And, and I mean, even it's 2023, we still struggle to talk about mental health pretty openly. And so for a young alpha male living in this alpha male house and in this environment that, that breeds supposedly strong men as boys, the mantra around that period of time was boys don't cry. Boys don't show emotions. Boys need to suck it up because to be a man, you've got to be tough. And so I sucked it up and I did this all internally for two years without failure, drove me mad, you know, and, and I use that word pretty loosely. People in the mental health space don't like those kind of words, but I use it. I, I use humour as a bit of, of a coping mechanism myself. And then over time that evolved. And so when I was in my teens, mum and dad separated. And so me and my little brother, we moved out with mum. And so we're in this environment still, we're in, still in the northern suburbs. And all of a sudden I felt like the unsafest person in the world. I felt like I had to become the man of the house and I and I did because I was the oldest male there. 
And it evolved from humming to myself to obsessively checking the house was locked because I was worried that someone would break in and either hurt us, kill us, kidnap us, steal our stuff. You name it, if it was bad, it was going to happen every single night. And so as a, you know, 11, 12, 13-year-old boy, I would spend up to three, four, five hours a night in and out of bed going around the house going, okay, is this door locked? Is this window closed? Are the curtains drawn in a certain way? Because I'm petrified of what lies outside the the house at night time. And so I would do the routine, I'd go to bed, and then my brain, the OCD brain would say, Simon, did you really check that window? Or maybe you didn't, maybe you forgot it on that round. Or maybe when you did touch the door, because I had to touch it in a certain way, it magically unlocked. And so you've got to go do it again. And you'd sit there sometimes in bed and go, I'm not going to check, I'm not going to check, I'm not going to get out. But the only way to stop the anxiety that's peeking through the roof is to get out of bed, do the checks again. And it extended to things like the iron, the oven, making sure the fridge was closed because I also had this fear that the house would burn down when we're sleeping as well. And so this consumed me for the next, I would say, 10 years or so. And I still live with this today. So I turned 40 this month, actually, and I still do this today, but not to the extent that I did in my teens. In the teens, it was hugely profound. And and then it extended to other things. So I'd go to school, I'd put my bag on, I'd put all my books in, I'd put my wallet and keys in there, and I would obsessively check that my wallet and keys were in my bag, particularly because I was worried that if I lost my wallet, one of these mysteriously bad people in the world would know where I lived. If they had my keys, they'd have means to get access to the house. And if you ever saw me, and nobody ever said anything, but if you, I knew I was doing this, every two steps on the way to work, you know, as I'm walking towards school, I'd pull the bag off, open up the front pocket, check, put the bag on, another two steps, check. And I'm doing this constantly all day, every day. And I still, I still do this one today. And these are the things that just consumed my mind. And so this is an OCD mind I'm describing. It's this overwhelming fear that the worst case scenario will happen because you don't perform an act. And so often I love sharing this story because OCD is a lot more complicated than people think and often it's it's quite joked about. I remember when COVID happened, I was in the workplace and we're in a team meeting in, in the public service and Someone said, oh, all the OCDers in the world would be really happy because now we're all cleaning our hands. And I'm like, well, that doesn't resonate with me because I couldn't care less about all that type of stuff. I know there is a, there's a contamination version of OCD where it's, you have to wash your hands religiously, otherwise you think that the germs will kill you. But that's not everybody with OCD. Most people with OCD don't have a neat freak, you know, attitude as well. And if they do, and someone says to me, oh, Simon, yeah, I'm a little bit OCD too. I say, okay, describe the behavior that they're doing. And and this actually happened recently where someone said, oh yeah, I like to have my sheets on my bed in a certain way. And if I don't, I just get a really bad night's sleep and they have to be in that certain way. And I said, okay, well, that's the compulsive behavior. What's the obsessive thought around that? And they're like, I don't have one. I'm like, well, you don't have OCD. So you hear a lot of these things. And so I love sharing my story, just just these little snippets of what OCD has been like for me. Another one is the car and having the handbrake on full as hard as possible because I worry that it's going to roll down 
a hill and smash into houses, kill people, you name it. And I don't, I don't want that to happen because I don't want to wish any harm on anybody. But also it's not just that, it's the, the thought of all the, I'm going to be responsible for that. I'm going to get in trouble for this. How can I live with myself if because of my actions, somebody else goes through an enormous pain? And so these all bubbled around undiagnosed for 20 years. So it was around 28 years old that I thought, well, my, my now wife encouraged me to go get help from a GP. And for years, I had kind of deflected that as most guys do. You know, I still had that coat of armor on there saying, I'm a man, I don't, I don't need to talk about this type of stuff. I'm going to, you know, maybe I'm going to drink for a little bit. The thing that I'm fascinated by though, Simon, is I can understand that part that you say, you know, this is the way I was brought up and therefore I just kept it internally and I just marched to my own drum. But the part that's sitting there for me is like, how did people not notice? You know, that's quite an external behavior that's happening. Any one of those behaviors, yes, they may not hear and see the thoughts that are going on in your head, but the behavior in particular, did people not see it or did they brush it aside or did they explain it away? I think about this constantly and, and since I've become, you know, sharing my story on podcasts, even to this day, nobody ever said anything, ever. Wow. Not about the humming. Like, and I would do the humming in, in a school class. I think it was just so quiet and I kept it so internalised. And even the, the, the checking at night, everyone else was asleep. So mum and my little brother were asleep. I was just thinking though, like losing that much sleep, you would have woken up tired and having that much persistent thought processes going on like all day long, right? Because that's what you're saying. It's like you don't get a break. You don't get to tap out and say, okay, I'm just going to stop thinking about that for a moment and I'll revisit that in two hours. So it's just this constant thought. It would be exhausting. Mm, it was and I was tired. Yeah, absolutely. And I didn't know how to deal with it. And when I was, you know, in my teens, I turned to alcohol just to slow things down and feel normal again as well and, and have some sort of moment of peace. And so no one ever once said anything to you? Never, never at all until... Blows my mind. Until my now wife encouraged me to get help. But even then, we didn't know the extremity of it. We didn't know what it was. We just thought it was me being depressed and just drinking too much. Yeah, wow. And you know what? Just that in itself is such an important message because we often use alcohol or some other addiction to cover the discomfort, the pain, the sensations that we feel, the thoughts that we have, you know, because it can, it can numb out some of that stuff. Like it's a really, really strong coping skill, but it doesn't necessarily serve us. So it's kind of this balance between it works really well, but there is a time that it kind of really, really underplays for us as humans and the way we want to live our life. Yeah, absolutely. And it started with the alcohol aspect of it started as socializing. And so I, I when I did it, I got happy-go-lucky again. I was free of mind and spirit. I was a bit of a larrikin as well. So, And it made me feel good. And everyone was like, oh, Simon, you're a bit different when you drink. You're a bit more fun when you drink and stuff like that. So I did it more and more and more. And, and for a long time, I thought that's why I was doing it. But then as I got older and, and I started reflecting on it, it's like, no, I'm actually doing this to 
feel normal and f- and to slow things and to de-stress and I'm using it for all the wrong reasons. And you were just leading into the doctors, you know, that you were at 28. So can you describe what was happening for you at 28? Like what led into you even thinking to put up your hand and say, I'm going to go to the doctor? Well, I guess it was 20 years of, of undiagnosed mental illness. I knew something wasn't quite right. And at that stage, I'd been working in, in a professional career for a while as well. And so it was seeping into work as well. And one of the other ways to cope was this high level of perfectionism. So to manage the anxiety before it got to anxiety, everything I did would have to be done in a certain way. I'd have a really high standard for my work and my behavior. But what was happening is, you know, maybe it's the it's the work function at Christmas time. And I see alcohol, I was like, oh yeah, I can I can have fun and people can see the real me, not the uptight you know, professional me and and I can let my guard down and have some fun and, and I'd do that and there was, a, you know, there's a few stories of me having way too many drinks and getting on the dance floor and everyone having a great time and, and, and people, and I still hear these stories today. But the next day what would happen is the obsessive thought would come in that maybe I said something or did something the night before that it's offended somebody. And so this would cycle around my brain and it would start getting worse and worse and then so I'd do a new compulsion, which is what they call rumination. And it's just the constant replaying of a, an event in your mind, trying to reassure me that nothing happened. And I would do that to the point where I would forget the entire night or the entire event. It would become so distorted, I wouldn't know what fact from fiction was. And so this would happen every time I would go to a social drinks to the point where I started avoiding social drinks and I started avoiding social things and I'd just go home, drink, you know, six to 12 beers at night on a Friday night by myself in front of the footy and watch the footy. And my now wife, she said, Simon, you're turning out to be someone who I didn't, I don't like anymore. And I know you're better than this and you're different and I want you to go get help. But for two years, I kind of brushed it off and said, no, nah, no, nah, it's not me, it's you. Maybe you're the issue. Maybe you need to go get help. But then after a while, it got to a point where internally I tried to, you know, not drink for a while, tried to go for a few extra runs around a block, try to be healthy, ate a few more healthy meals. But I just started getting more and more tired of doing this. And so eventually it, it got to an ultimatum where my now wife said, you've either got to get help or leave. I couldn't imagine going through life without her. So I thought, you know what, now's my time. Now it's a time when I've got to pull up my socks. I've got to book myself into a GP. I've got to go in there. And I still remember today, it's one of the hardest things I've ever said was, I think I've got a mental health issue. And this is back in 2012. But that opened the door to, you know, 11 years now or so of different therapies, medications, ways of healing and then ultimately now using my pain as my passion in, in the business that I run. So Big message that's coming out there, Simon, you know, like I think you're not alone in that space, whether it was in the 80s or 90s or whether it's today, like a couple of things. One is when someone says to you, points out a behaviour and says this isn't working for us anymore, we either take it internal, like we either blame ourselves more and crumble or we push it back out, right, to keep ourselves safe. It's like, no, no, I'm not the problem, you are. You know, because if we start saying, no, actually, there's a problem, we're we're not quite ready to digest that. And the fear is that what will happen if I actually say that out loud or or accept that or or really stare down the barrel of what that looks like in my world. So, you know, I think that's so normal. And I want to ask you a little bit about that. 
The other thing was walking in and actually saying out loud to someone, hey, I think something's wrong here because you don't know what way it's going to go. And you don't know what that one sentence is going to change in your world or what that person's going to either judge or I often hear from people, it's like, but what if they tell me to do something I can't and then I fail again? You know, it's sort of, there's so much, like this is whole package that comes in with those few words, that one sentence that you say out loud to someone else. Absolutely. There is. And, and I didn't know what to expect when I went into that doctor's appointment all I knew was that this was the only way I was going to try and keep my relationship together. And when I said the words, I nearly, I nearly choked on them as they came out because I'd never spoken about anything internally to anybody, even my, you know, my partner at the time and my now wife. And, and it just felt better. Like it felt good to finally be talking about it and, and then getting the subsequent referral to a psychologist and starting that process. And, and that's where I got these diagnoses. You know, it's not just the OCD, but it was it was depression and anxiety first. I'm like, okay, yeah, I kind of figured the depression, not so much the anxiety, but then it's like, oh, yeah, there's this thing called OCD. Like, what is that? Never heard of that. And so I did a bit of research as well and, and identified that obsessive compulsive disorder is what they call a silent condition or a silent disorder takes an average someone from first symptom to first treatment about 15 years to go through that process. And for me, it wasn't 20 years. It was 20 years to the diagnosis. It was probably, you know, I'm 40 this year. It was like two or three years ago that I finally got some help for OCD. And that came in a, in a roundabout way. You know, I experienced burnout in 2020. So that came out of that story, which is also something that's you know, it had a profound impact on, on the way that I live my life and the way I look at myself. But you mentioned a key word there, it was acceptance. Accepting that something was wrong and accepting that something needed to change. And that that started with me. It could never come from somebody else. That was going to be my question. I, I was thinking out of curiosity, did you think something was wrong and accept that before you got to the doctor or were you purely doing it because someone else had told you to? Because yeah. I think we can act out of someone else giving us an ultimatum. We can. But I think where you're talking, I'm like, oh, it sounds like there was a little bit of acceptance that happened before you walked into the door. It was definitely a little bit of acceptance. It was something like, okay, yep, she's right. Something's not quite right here. I've got to start getting this sorted. Two years ago, or even in the two years prior to that, it was all deflecting. It was me saying, no, nah, it's not me, it's you. Maybe you need to get help. And I'm glad she persisted because, you know, I still go to therapy today as, a, as a, you know, 11 years on and even as a therapist myself, but I wouldn't have been there without her support. And I say her, it's my wife, Rachel, and she's the most beautiful person in the world, the strongest person I've ever known. And, yeah, I really am thankful for, to, to her for that support but I'm also mindful that I needed to accept it as well because I work with guys who are dragged into therapy. It doesn't end well. And so you've really got to be in a position where you go, you know what, I think I'm ready to change. You don't need to know the how, yeah. right? Like you don't need to know the how. You don't even need to know the who sometimes. You just need to go, okay, I know that where I am right now is not where I want to be and I'm ready to do something. Yep. Absolutely. And before we go into the burnout, you just mentioned that briefly, I was just wanted to circle back to OCD a little bit because you do hear lots of misconceptions out there and we have named a few. Are there any that we haven't spoken about that would be important for the listeners to hear today? 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and we talked about the, you know, washing your hands or, or keeping your, your house neat and tidy or your desk at work or school or whatever. Often they're the misconceived ones. They're the ones that everyone goes to. But I'm seeing a lot in the social media as well is around it being kind of like a personality quirk or a personality trait. It's like, oh, I'm so OCD or I'm a little bit OCD. If you ever spoke to someone who has OCD, and I think I probably I didn't mention before is that the disorder component comes because you're doing this for over an hour a day and you're and it has a profound impact on your life. So there is a time component of, of this as well. And so you can't be a little bit OCD. You can't just say, oh, you know, I just I just like things neat and tidy because there has to be the obsessive thought component, the compulsive behavior. And it's time as well. You've got to do it for a long period of time and it has a profound impact on you. Like we talked about my fatigue. You know, go, being up four or five hours a night, and then having to go to school the next day, and still doing it, and never having a break until I drank. You know, that's that's OCD. That's living with it. It's not, it's not a cool thing to have. And and so, if you're sitting in a in an office meeting, and I've seen that over a 15 year career in a public service, is those jokes they do hurt. It's just like we don't joke. Oh, you know, I'm a little, you don't say I'm a little bit autistic. I'm a little bit ADHD, I'm a little bit depressed, like maybe you might say I'm a little bit depressed, but you're either depressed or you're not. You're either autistic or you're not. You're either OCD or you're not. And and so if we can change some of this discourse, I think so many more people, maybe they won't spend 15 years on average in silence trying to outthink it themselves or, or do it in silence like, you know, I did it for over, for over 20 Maybe they'll get help sooner because it's not so laughed upon and so forth. Also to highlight, the behaviour you walk past, the behaviour you accept in a workplace, the behaviour that you don't see in the people around you and you don't highlight to them reinforces in their minds that, well, it must be normal or this isn't something that's out of the normal, you know. So I think like when you're saying that, there'll be people listening to this that are, are, are questioning like I can think of someone in my life right now that would spend three to four hours a day in that ruminating thought process that it does translate across to some sort of compulsion. But I'd imagine if I had a conversation with them prior to this, what we're talking about, they would say, yes, but it's just getting ready for the next day. They would not be able to do it. And because it's happening in the hours they're awake and it's not washing their hands, they wouldn't even consider that they could be sitting in this category. Yeah, and, and it's so there's so many diverse themes. So OCD, there's theme-based. So mine's a lot, a lot around safety and security. Yes, right? yes. And there's other ones. So there's, we've talked a bit about the germs ones. There's ones around worrying that germs are going to kill you essentially and that's the where the cleanliness one comes in. I don't have that. You know, I've, mine's a safety one, but there's other ones. And I was talking to an OCD therapist on my podcast as well. It's around pedophilia OCD, right? So you say the word pedophile, and this happens every time I'm on a podcast, and people are like, oh, I don't want to talk about this. This is a really uncomfortable conversation. Imagine if you're a parent, right? You're not a pedophile, but your obsessive thought is if I take my child to a public toilet when we're at the park, the obsessive thought is maybe people around me are going to think I'm a pedophile. And so the compulsive behaviour is you don't take your child to the toilet or you avoid that, you you get somebody else with that. You never take your child to the toilet. Or maybe you work at a school, you're a teacher or something like that, and you're like, oh, what if I look at someone and they're going to think I'm looking at them like I'm a pedophile? And so you start avoiding being a teacher, being the awesome teacher that you are. And so there's that kind of component. There's religious ones, there's, there's spirituality ones. 
you mentioned before around your someone that you know and they might think about that. There's a, a version of OCD called Pure O and it's pure obsessions and that's the obsession plus the compulsion in, in, in one. So you don't sit around checking things. You're checking in here and it's just constantly going around like a hamster wheel on, on faster and faster and faster. And, and a lot of these underlying them, and I've found this out through my therapy with my therapist, is, is there's a lot of ethical stuff that comes around it. When we think about these things, we think we're the most unethical people in the world. And that if we don't do these compulsions, that these things will come true. So if I don't check my house exactly right, someone will come into my house and steal my three-year-old. And I would have to live with that for the rest of my life because I didn't check enough. And and so it is a lot more profound than people think. And so if we can stop joking about it, and, and I love coming on to shows and talk, telling my OCD story because it can just help maybe somebody else out there go either go, you know what, I'm feeling the same. Maybe I should go get checked out as well. Or someone else go, you know what, I'm not going to joke about OCD anymore. Sometimes we don't know any different, as in, like when you were saying that, it, if no one ever mentioned it or you've never been able to say, oh, this isn't normal. I remember like totally different story, but I had a reflux, I had three reflux babies. And my first one, I used to come home and say to my husband, no, no, all the mums are awake. He's like, Oz, you're up all night. And I was like, yeah, so are all the other mums, because I thought that was normal. The difference was they would get up, feed their babies, go back to sleep. I was literally awake all night because I had this screaming baby on my chest and I would just walk around the house and he would go to call and he'd come back and I'd still be up with this baby. But I had nothing to compare to and no one had actually mentioned it to me. So I didn't actually have that mirror held up in front of me to be like, oh, this isn't normal. This isn't everyone else's experience. I just assumed that that was what everyone else was going through. Absolutely. And I felt like that through as a child and doing the humming thing and, and doing the the late night checking, I thought, oh, there's other people, there, maybe there's other men of the house doing this. Maybe this is the role of the dad and I am just happened to be a dad early as, you know, as a kid because my dad doesn't live here anymore. And I felt exactly the same and, and I felt like, but it wasn't until I guess in my late teens, early 20s and 20s when it reversed and I felt like the only person in the world feeling like this. And I couldn't talk about it. And so I didn't talk about it. And it wasn't until I was diagnosed and then subsequently the burnout story, which we'll get to, that I discovered an OCD community through the magic of social media. I'm like, oh, there's people out there just like me. And actually there's all these different themes I didn't know about. There's one around harm. If you hold a knife, there's this overwhelming fear that you're going to stab someone. You don't want to, but it's just an obsessive thought. It's an intrusive thought that we can't get rid of. So you avoid knives. Like I didn't know that existed. And and these other ones that we've talked about already, like, and it's just so isolating, but also so rewarding when we can connect, you know, with other people with similar conditions. And we've mentioned burnout twice now. So I'm, <laughs> I'm nervous about mentioning it for a third time and not going there. However, let's tie a loop in this part of the conversation. If someone's listening and they want to get help, where do they go? around OCD? Like what would be their first step or what would be their options in front of them? Yeah, OCD. So I was in therapy for a long time before anyone even recommended treating OCD. Everyone was treating depression, anxiety. So in a mental health space, the hardest thing is just starting the conversation, going to your GP, getting help. In Australia, we've got the mental health treatment plans, which gives you subsidised therapy. So that's your starting point is just being okay to talk about stuff. It's hard but you, you'll get through it. it. And it gets easier every single time. For OCD specifically, 
you treat it with something called exposure response prevention, so ERP, and it kind of come under that that cognitive behavioural therapy umbrella. In CBT or cognitive behavioural therapy, you're, you're targeting thoughts and and trying to reprogram the mind into thinking differently. In OCD, you want to target the behaviour and stop the behaviour because that reinforces the thought. So a quick example was we, and I did this with my therapist, we went into the car park, I took my handbrake off the, the car and we turned around. My heart is skipping for you. Just, it's okay. It was I, flat. It was flat. Uh, I know, but I just, just how hard that would have been. Was it hard? Absolutely. And, and so what we did, we, we took the handbrake off. What a mean therapist. No, <laughs> this is part of it. We, we, we turned around, we walked five metres and the goal was not to look at the car because part of my compulsive was also compulsions around that was also looking at the car to make sure it wasn't rolling away. And so, we, but we weren't allowed to look at it for 10 seconds, 10 seconds. Longest 10 seconds of your life, right? <laughs> and what, what happens is, is your anxiety goes up and, and, he, and he's asking me to rate, okay, rate it, rate it, rate it, rate it. And then go, okay, tell me where the peak is. And so we get to a point, maybe 10 seconds and go, okay, yeah, I feel like this is the peak. And then we wait another 10 seconds and you can feel the anxiety come down. And so all we did was we created a scenario where we had to test it because that was the only one we could test because all of my other stuff happens in the middle of the night and it would be weird for my psych to be in my house at 12 o'clock at night. Not a very committed psych. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> the, the, the out of hours rate that I would have had to pay yeah. uh, would have been astronomical. But, like, I love the description you're giving because I'm right there with you, right, in that. I just, like, I feel your anxiety, not the same way, but, like, just even you telling that story, I'm like, Ooh, like it would have been massive to do yeah, that. Absolutely. And there's other elements. So if you pictured my house, I would have to go around like a racetrack. And if you think of a racetrack, it's just one road and you have to go through each curve and all that type of stuff. So each window or each door would be a curve in a racetrack. And so I'd have to go one, two, three, four, five, check these things in order. And so through the ERP process, what we also wanted to do was just tell my brain that I'm in control, not it. And so change the order. So maybe it's doing it in reverse, going five, four, three, two, one, or or maybe it's one, two, five, four, three. Just just mixing it all up. Because what that does is it tells our brain that like, we're in control. I'm not gonna have to succumb to this disorder in my brain's terms. And so other nights it could be, can I skip a window? <laughs> that was huge. Huge. <laughs> oh again, my heart's like, oh <laughs> God, that's tough. <laughs> I skip entire windows and it's fantastic. I'm not at a point with skipping doors. That's a big one for me. Are you okay with that too? Like I guess there's a level of like these are the things that I'm okay with and if I'm going to work on something, you know, if we're just going to shave that last 5% off somewhere, where's that 5%? Where's that low-hanging fruit that we can start with, even though it's hard, like I say that very carefully, even though it's hard, it's like what can we do because the doors would be too big. You start small. Start with the thing that you can manage the most, even though that you know, it can be really challenging. And the more you practice it, like everything in life, the better you get at it. And so now I'm at a point where it doesn't take me five hours to get to bed at night time. Sometimes, yes, I'm up and down all night, but there's other elements that I can control now. And I know that I'm in control, not my brain. And on that, you know, when you said you were standing there, you're walking away from the car, counting the way that the anxiety is increasing. And part of that, and I guess this is something that I wanted again to ask you, is it's also knowing that that anxiety does hit a tip and then it starts to come down and that that the world didn't fall apart in that moment and that experience of making it through. 
making it through the tip of that nine or 10 out of 10 and then starting to feel what it's like to come down the other side so that it's a familiar, it's a problem you've started to solve. It's something that you're like, oh, I've been here before and I know that I might make it through this. Yeah, absolutely. And and I did joke to my therapist. I said, I would never have done that if it was on a hill. Yes, absolutely. too much. That but that's right. that door. That's the door and window <laughs> conversation, isn't it? That's important because I think so often, so often if we think about traffic lights, green, orange and red, so often we're in the red and we think let's get to the green and why are we not in the green and look at all these people that are in the green. It's like, no, 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 let's just, let's just take a moment, take stop. If we just need to get from the red to a little closer to the orange, not even in the orange, like if we're at the bottom of the red and we just want to get up that little bit closer to the orange, what's one thing we can do? And what's the easiest thing we can do in this space? Like let's not go for the hardest, what's the easiest? And then if we want to go from that red and just step into the orange and just see what it feels like, like let's just let's just see. We're not committed to it, we're not married. Let's just test the water here and see what happens. You know, that's such a different approach to, oh, my God, I need to be in the green and I should be there right now. So And it takes time. Like, you know, I've been doing therapy for 11 years. My first few times at therapy was, I would say, a failure because I would walk in, expect them to heal me, wave a magic wand, and that'll be it. But what I've since learned is like, no, this is an ongoing thing. It takes practice. It takes me reconnecting in with therapists at different life points and going, you know what, I'm doing really well, but I need a bit of extra help. Or I'm doing terribly again and recognizing that it's more of a roller coaster and it is a... It's my own race, as you mentioned. Like I, I have often compared to myself to other people and wondering what's wrong with me, but I realise that we're all running our own races and it's going to take as long as it takes. How do we kind of stop on that race and look around and be like, huh, I'm okay that I'm here? You know, mm. how do we really be okay with where we're at and soak that moment up? Because we can always go backwards, you know, and... I always think about it's like when you're a young, fit person and then we get to our 40s or 50s and we think, oh, we were so fit back then. There's always a back then or there's always a, you know. And so it's not about back then or it's not about that person over there. It's about like, what? well, what's working right now in your world? Yeah, absolutely. What's gone well for you right now and, and what are you noticing and who have you got in your world? And let's just take stock of that for a moment. Yeah, we're well, touching on mindfulness there, which is something that I've discovered along my journey and something that now I use as a foundation for my therapy business because I found it's just so, we often overlook those simple small things that actually fill our cups and make us feel good because we're too worried about the past or the, you know, the past or the future, not so much the present. Mm, Those little micro moments. Now we do need to go into burnout because we've mentioned it so many times and we are going to run out of time because I wanted to ask you something about that. So, So let's chat about the burnout. Do you think that the OCD led into that or is this a whole separate chapter of your life? No, it absolutely led into it. And I mentioned perfectionism, having this really high bar of perfectionism. And a lot of that was to control the anxiety that comes with obsessive thoughts if I didn't do something in a certain way. So when it came into the workplace, it was around I would write an email, reread it a million times to make sure it was perfect and then send it. But what I would then do is reread it after I've sent it because I was worried I had this obsessive thought that the words would magically change and become quite offensive. And so but the act of rereading it another 100 million times or however ever long was to reassure me that, no, the world is okay, you, 
the email didn't magically change. And, and it's funny when you we talk about this from an OCD perspective because it can sound really stupid. That like, That's a really stupid thing to, to think about. But I did. And, and that's what OCD is. It, it can pop up these really random, silly things like losing my voice. If I'd known that there was people that went on silence retreats for years, they don't talk. For you. Monks go into the, into the mountains, don't talk for years. They get take a vow of silence. They don't lose their voice. If I knew that at eight, I maybe would have never have developed OCD, but I did. And so throughout all these years, I developed this perfectionist version of me, this person that had it all sorted out, you know, and I was really good at my job as well as, as a public servant in the various things. That's the part that I'm really interested in because when you said, you know, people think that it's it's silly or what, I'm not sure the word you used, that's not where my head goes. My head goes, it's exhausting. My head goes, how did you get anything done? Like how did you actually operate in the world? Because that, that takes time. Everything you're talking about takes time. Yeah. So I'd be constantly at a million miles an hour. So I would do things very fast and I would do things with precision as well. You send me an email, I'll be the first person to respond within five minutes. Even though you checked it so many times. Yeah. yeah. And people are like, Simon, that's thanks so much for that response and that's a great response and everything. And I could do that for so long. But in 2020 what happened was... I was obviously living with mental illness. I worked in a high performance job where I had to be on the go all the time and it was wearing me thin. I was studying a master's of social work at the time. Not busy. Not busy. We had kids. We had COVID (laughs) lockdowns, you name it, and it all crashed into each other and I could no longer jump up and hit that bar of perfectionism. And And I first noticed that at work I was unable to to send that quick email response. And I remember being in client meetings and where I was meant to be facilitating this, this meeting that will go for two hours, and I'd do this several times a day, getting 10 to 15 minutes in and going, I have no idea what's just happened in the last 15 minutes. No idea at all. And, and so for anyone who's not familiar with burnout, it's, it's prolonged chronic stress that gets to a point where we become really cynical, we're fatigued, we have brain fog 24-7. I developed a mysterious back pain that scans couldn't couldn't diagnose of what was going on and they could say well Simon we could do surgery but we don't know what we're looking for we don't know why your your back is so sore and all these things crumbled down and what happened was I needed to take five months off of work and it's just lucky that I had all this sick leave available where I could do that and I was a basically a, a couch potato and it's through this process that I discovered mindfulness through a therapist and it started off with gratitude journaling what's your three things you're grateful for today. And and the reason we did that is because when you burn out as well, you just lose all this joy. You lose you lose hope. You lose a sense of fulfillment, achievement. You lose perspective. You do. And you just feel like you just feel miserable and both towards yourself and to the rest of the world. And so for the next five months, it was all around trying to recover for one, but also rediscover the joy and find things that made me feel good and and mindfulness helped me do that the gratitude the three things i'm grateful for worked for about a week and then i'm like well i'm just regurgitating the same three things but then over time i've learned new strategies for for looking at the micro things like this conversation like a cup of coffee like you know seeing an amazing sunrise or a sunset and actually going you know what i'm going to turn off of autopilot which i've been living on for the majority of my life and start living in the now and going what are my kids doing right now that I can jump into and laugh and 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 have some fun with that? Because for a lot of the time, they'd say, dad, 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 but I'd be on a different planet. 
I would not be in the present moment. I'd be thinking about all the other things in a world that I didn't need to think about. And it was exhausting. And so from burnout, I started to take off my mask. And I call it my mental health mask because I went back to work and as part of my recovery, I held a team meeting and I shared, hey, guys, this is what burnout is. This is how I've been impacted with it. You haven't seen me for four or five months and this is why. Also, hey, I also live with OCD, depression, anxiety. Let's talk about that as well because I've never shared that publicly. And so many people came up to me afterwards and said, Simon, man, I've been feeling burnout too. Is this what burnout is? Didn't know it was. Or someone else came up to me and said, Simon, that's why I was away for three weeks or four weeks or whatever. You took four months, five months off. I took three weeks off and then I felt like I had to come back to work. And so these discussions started, you know, snowballing out and spreading out to a point where I'm like, you know what, I'm going to take it further and I'm going to start a social media page. So I started an Instagram page to share the story just to inspire other guys to, to speak up because I'm a guy and I've never heard other guys talk about mental health and, and I felt good doing it finally and, and started this thing called Mindful Men and which has snowballed into my own podcast, the Mindful Men podcast, but then also now my business, which is a therapy business called Mindful Men. It's not just about the three things you're grateful for. It's also about guys recognizing how we're showing up. Are we drinking too much? Are we have other addictions? Are we deflecting and going, okay, how can I switch off of autopilot, start being more in the present, and then also live more authentically? And now this is the path I'm on, is trying to be as present in the moment as I can because it just feels so good instead of worrying about yesterday or tomorrow, just being right here now. It's a relief, isn't it? It's a skill. It's something people can learn and it is simple but hard to do. So I think sometimes it's like I always refer to like when you're doing, I know we're talking about men in particular, but pelvic floor exercises, and that can be men as well. But in the gym and you try and get people to do their pelvic floor exercises, they're like, I can't feel it. I don't know. Like, how do I see that? And I go, I can't see that in the mirror when I look. It reminds me of that. It's like mindfulness, we don't tangibly see the difference in a week. But I guarantee anyone that's listening will see a difference in a couple of months and it will change their life forever in a year and they will never go back. Like it's not something that once you've got it and it's a part of your repertoire that you'd be like, oh, let go of that, it's not working for me anymore. It's like a non-negotiable, right? It becomes a stable in your life. Mm, absolutely. And when I first heard it, I, I, I scoffed at it. We all do. I did the alpha male thing where I'm like, I'm a guy, I'm not going to think about the three things I'm grateful for. This sounds, this sounds girly. This sounds woo-woo. This sounds hippie. I'm not that person. But once I let that bravado go and start going, you know what, I'm going to start listening more and, and, and trying different things and being okay with not being this hyper-masculine alpha male that I've grew up being, yeah, like all of a sudden I can find I can find 100 things I'm grateful for pretty quickly now and very small things as well. And that's interesting in itself where you said, you know, when you first started finding three things, I think you said was tough. And after a week, it was the same three things. Whereas you just said then it's now a hundred. Like right now, if we said it, you could list a hundred. And so that's that muscle memory. That's that learning to do something and becoming really good in your in your lane at it. So you it expands, it gets easier, you get more breadth to it. Yeah. And, it, and it's extended to other things like breath work as well. Like I've I've gone, okay, I'm being mindful of how I'm showing up and, and how I'm feeling. What's some alternatives to traditional talk therapy, which I've done to death? And I, so, I've, you know, jumping into breath work, I, I, when I was doing the, the burnout recovery, I jumped into men's yoga. And the first time I've ever done anything like that, 
and just to be able to move the body. I mean, we're old stiff wooden planks, all of us that were in there, but it just felt good to move. And then I, I would often go into those sessions really anxious, my mind racing a million miles an hour. By the end of it, with you mix the breath, the movement and, and some of the yoga chants or whatever they do, I always walked out with a clear mind and felt ready to tackle the day. And, and by the time I got home and the kids are going crazy, that all went away. But I had at least half an hour or an hour of peace in the mind. And, and this is what I, I value now as I get older is having these more of these moments of peace as well. And I sort of think about that, you know, if you draw a line across a page, the middle of an A4 page, you draw a line straight across and you're always lifting up the bar. You know, you're racing around, your thoughts are racing, you're trying to get more done, you're busy, you're on flight fight, like you don't know if you're coming or going. You know, that that line lifts up and what what meditation, yoga, breathwork, mindfulness, they're all what we call anchoring tools and techniques. So what that does is that brings that bar, even if it brings it just back to the middle of the page, it means next time you go, you're coming from that base instead of going from five centimetres up and then 10 centimetres up and then 15 centimetres up, which is where burnout starts to occur. So it's allowing you to come back, back to ground zero to go again. It's filling up our buckets, our well-being buckets. Like we don't want to be like, what can we use when we're empty? We want to be like, how can we be filling it up so that when adversity hits, we're, we're taking from a full bucket that's overflowing? Absolutely. And, and for a long time, I was filling that bucket with alcohol. Yeah. You know, and I felt like that was helping, but all it was doing, it was giving me a short-term relief. The problems were still there the next day. So what is different in your world now? Like we can hear that kind of transformation, if if that's the word. I don't know if that, that's a word you resonate with, but like I can hear as you're talking, I can see it in you actually. Like not that I knew you before, but I could, you're, you're energized. Like you're actually glowing, to be honest, <laughs> and a sense of calmness in you as we're talking. So can you just like, if you were to stand back with a bird's eye view and look at your life now, without you even saying anything, I know you, you're probably going to say it's not all perfect because it never is. We don't live in this world of contentment and joy all the time. But if you were to stand back and look from a bird's eye view at your life now, what is the significant differences for you since? speaking out about your mental health, getting support and help, having conversations and putting tools and strategies in place that work for you. Whether that be, it might work this week, it might not work next, but it sounds like you've got a whole bucket there. Sometimes that bucket does have holes in it. And I'm glad you mentioned that because yesterday I wasn't great. And, but that's okay. Like, and today I'm great. Like I'm have, I've had some amazing conversations and, and done some really good client sessions today as well. And that, and that fills my bucket up as well. And so first of all, it's recognizing that it's okay to be not okay. And, and that acceptance was huge. Accepting that I needed help in 2012 to finally go and start a different life's journey was huge. And acceptance as I've got older, learning more about myself, how I work, how I operate, living more authentically. So taking off that mask acceptance is the key thing that in every single situation. And I see it with the guys that walk into my therapy business, the ones that accept what's going on and they're ready for change, they're the ones that have the profound differences. Whereas the guys that are dragged there by their partner or, or whatever, they're shut up shop, they might be one session in and out and that's it. So acceptance is like that underlying thing. And that's the more I dive into mindfulness, the more I learn about acceptance and my my framework, my my therapy framework, but personal th- framework comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. It's all around that accepting of what's going on, accepting emotions for what they are and not pushing them away anymore, just letting them in 
recognizing them and then working out, okay, how am I going to use this to get well again, to fill the bucket up again? And so there's periods where, yeah, I, I do pick up the beers too often or I'm eating wrong or I'm not going to the gym or I'm not going for a walk or I'm not in therapy and things do go a bit haywire. But it's recognizing in that moment going, oop, um, I've slipped off the, the bandwagon, I've got to jump back on and I can do that quite quickly now. And I'm the first person now to say, I need to go get a therapist. I need to go talk to someone about something. I need to try something different because the last one didn't quite work out. Kind of much like we do, you know, go to a physio if we hurt our leg at the gym. I'm the same with my mental health. Straight to my GP, hey, these are the things that are going on. I need to talk to someone about this. Can I get a mental health treatment plan? Or if I've run out of my sessions, I'll do it anyway because spending $200 with a therapist who's, you know, can give me the tools and different perspective, that's really key as well as having people in your network who can you can bounce ideas off. It's not all about you sitting on a couch crying your eyes out because I've only done that once or twice in 11 years of therapy. Mm. Mm. And that's often what people think is going to happen when you go to a therapist. If I'm really honest in this space, I would say people cry a lot more in my gym than they ever did in my counselling room. No, I mean that. <laughs> like it's a guarantee for anyone, this is not our marketing campaign here, that if you come to AFA, you'll cry within the first three sessions. Guaranteed. I don't I can count on my hands how many clients have actually walked in the door and not cried because they're seen, validated and heard for the first time in a fitness scenario. In a counselling room, it's the opposite. Like so often it's like, oh, someone's hearing me, I'm validated, but it's, it's a sense of more relief. Whereas in the gym, it's like, oh my God, I don't know what to do with this. This is the first time I'm experiencing this and I don't know what to do. Someone's looking at me and seeing me for who I am, where I'm at, what exactly is going on for me in this moment in time. Yeah, and not judging mm. as well. Mm. And that's huge. Like in all the spaces I've been, I went to my first men's retreat. This is a new one that I've done recently and it was 27 blokes all being vulnerable and not one sense of judgment. And it felt so safe. I've even booked in for the next one, which is happening in November with these guys that are running it. And I'm like, I wish I did this years ago. You know, why did I wait until I'm almost 40 to do this type of stuff? So if anyone's listening and they're younger, get into this now because it will benefit you for longer than it you know it has for me and I'm going to keep doing this so you can do it too. You know when you talk about the acceptance because that's something that I really I sometimes feel like a harp on about a lot but it's like it's it comes back to what can you control and what can't you control and where are you now like are you actually looking at where you are in this scenario and taking stock and one of the things that I often say to myself is like oh you can get bitter or you can get better like there's two roads here and you're standing at the fork. Which one do you want? And what does it look like? Like how are you going to show up for yourself? What information do you need if you're going to choose down the getting better road? Like what does that look like? Who do you need in your corner? What do you need to learn about? What support? You know, a whole list of things there. Or, you know, I can get bitter, which is unresourceful behaviours, that mindset of like I'm victim mentality, I can't do this anymore, and just being like, well, I'm here and there's nothing I can do about it. The bitter pathway is often the one that looks the easiest one as well. Well, it is easier sometimes in the short time. Like it's because we get that initial reinforcement and reward from whatever it is that we go and do there that sabotages where we want to be. We get the hit, right, straight up. And then we think, great, we're good, and then we get the crash, but and then we look for the hit again. Yeah, so I often look at this in the frame of when we're struggling and, and guys, but girls as well, like we might go, I just need a night out with my mates. And so we spend hundreds of dollars 
on going out, you know, drinks, food, taxis, maybe a hotel, maybe a new outfit, maybe a new haircut, hundreds of dollars sometimes for a very short, you know, for five, six hours. You've got a cheap haircut and a cheap <laughs> outfit there, mate. I'm well, like a couple of hundred, a couple I'm, thousand. I'm lo- <laughs> I am losing my hair so I naturally have, my, have a haircut. <laughs> yeah. But it, it could be, it could be. And and that gives you a day's worth of, of relief, this the Band-Aid thing, whereas people often balk at going to a therapist, which might cost you a couple hundred bucks a, a session, but the long-term gains that you get from that, even going to the gym, you know, going, you know, taking up a gym thing or going to see a dietitian, going to see anybody in the wellness space, we're reluctant to spend that money because we're like, oh, this is just woo-woo or it's not going to help me. Or it's going to equal hard work, which yeah. is it does equal hard work. It's not a quick fix. But it plants seeds for your growth yeah. in the future. And, and yeah. I've been on this journey for 11 years now, like the recovery journey, and that's the word that they use in the mental health space. I don't really care for it. But yeah, like I've, I had these seeds planted a long time ago and now I'm starting to see shoots, which is I can draw from, but it is a long time coming. And you're still married. Like let's just go back to the beginning of this conversation. Like the very first 15 minutes you told us that that was like, mate, what's going on here? I'm not hanging around to see this behaviour. And then you tell us that you guys are still together. Like, I mean, how much would you pay for that, people? Like how much would you pay to be back in love with your partner and still be with them in 10, 11, 12, 15 years' time? Yeah. Like is $200 too much for that? Mm. It's like where are your priorities at? And like we've got two kids, we've got a house, we, you know, we're pretty pretty good. doesn't mean that we don't struggle, but what it does mean is that I recognise as a guy, you know, particularly the alpha male growing up, for example, that I have my vulnerabilities and it's okay. Like I can go get help and it's actually good for my relationship. And it's also good for my kids as well for when they see that their dad's well and not sitting on the couch. I heard for your team. Like I heard there was a beautiful response from your team when you opened up with that vulnerability. Absolutely. And then now on the social media and now in my business where I'm helping other guys and I pride myself now as being a lived experience therapist, I don't hide away from the fact that I live with mental illness because I feel like it's just part of me. It's it's something I can draw from and give the guys that I work with, hey, here's a tool that I've used in the path, like the anxiety thing that we did talked about around the, the exposure response prevention, I've done it in my own therapy. So let's give it a go and see if it works for you. Yeah. So let's talk because we do need to wrap up for today. Let's talk about how people find you. I mean, your podcast, absolutely. Yeah, the Mindful Men podcast. So that came from burnout as well. It was all around sharing the stories. But yeah, I talk with people across the world around their personal stories and just helping guys to be mindful of how they're showing up in the world and maybe what they could do to address that. So that's the Mindful Men podcast. If you're interested in working with me, I do therapy across Australia, so telehealth, but also in person on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. And my website's mindful-men.com.au. I, for some reason, thought you were in WA. I have no idea where that came And you're like, sunny coast. I'm like, um, why did I think you're in WA? <laughs> So lucky I didn't do the pitch for you, right? <laughs> <laughs> I have very close people in my network. So for some reason, there's one guy that I always talk to and I always think he lives in Canberra, but he lives in Melbourne. <laughs> yes, yes. It's so funny. No, but seriously, anyone, like you've heard us say this before on Challenges That Change Us, but I just can't reiterate it enough. You will know when you go to a therapist. You will know when you walk into a room, whether it's a psychologist, a therapist, a counsellor, whether they're right for you and trust that. 
and trust and have the confidence and the courage to try again if they're not. You know, Simon, like you're an option. If people are there and they're working with a therapist or a counselor or they tried one person, they thought, oh, they weren't for me. Don't stop. Try someone else because it is the most beautiful and rewarding relationship when you get it right. And it's a relationship for a period of time in your life. I've had different therapists for different reasons throughout my life. And I say that when I used to be in the room with people, like, you know, there will come a point that I'm not the person for you. And that's okay. And it's meant to look that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I say that every time I bring on a new client. And even recently, I've had referrals and say, the issues that you're talking about, I can't help you with. We can work with it, but there's going to be someone out there that really, this is their lane. This is their yeah. genius lane. Let's find out who that person is and get you in with them. And a good therapist will help you do that and, yeah. and will recognise it as opposed to just accepting your referral and taking your money. And I've been to oh, I've been to psychiatrists, psychologists, counsellors, social workers, life coaches, business coaches, you name it, I've done it. And it is what, it's like going to the shop and trying on a pair of pants. You don't, we all have that magical one pair that we've put on and I go, yep, this is it. But most of us are just throwing jeans out the door and, and and someone else is throwing more clothes in as well. It takes a while to find the right fit, but it's okay. That's part of the process. Mm. And we could do a whole podcast and maybe you and I should on the difference between counsellors, therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, business coaches, life coaches. Like, you know, they all come, they all come as a unique human regardless of what the title is. And so there's different people for different times and like a psychiatrist can help with medication, for example, but and a counsellor can't. So there's some really clear framework around that. But at the end of the day, that human has lived experience in a certain area, has education experience, has experience in the therapy room that will be different from the person next to them. So yeah, just keep trying, guys. If you're out there, keep trying. And You've got Simon's details. We'll be popping that in the show notes along with his podcast link as well. So I'd love you all to go in and have a look at that and shoot us any questions. Like, you know, I can pass them on to Simon. You can put them in the Facebook group. Like shoot us questions because it is awesome to have a male on talking about mental health and talking about your own lived experience. Like just thank you from the bottom of my heart. But before we say our goodbyes, I have a question for you. Who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh. I always look to my two kids. So I've got a three-year-old daughter who has the most wicked laugh in the world, but and my son as well. So I don't want to leave him out. But last night, for example, I've got a new a new watch which tracks my steps and I'm trying to get the 10,000 steps every day. And last night I was about 2,000 steps short. You're lucky so- you don't have me as a PT because I'd be saying 15, mate. Like I'm feeling 10 is on the, sl- you know. I'm not as young as I used to be. <laughs> <laughs> but 10,000 is my goal because, you know, I figured that's a nice even balance. And but they they walked up and down the hallway with me for about 15 or 20 minutes last night to get those last 2,000 and then they were dancing and carrying on like kids do and it was just a really good mindful and grounding moment because I'm like, you know what, all the stress that I had yesterday, I had a lot of stress, but to do that last 2,000 steps with them up and down the hallway and it felt like for, it was going forever but they were having a ball and every time I can tune into that mindfully and be present in that, it just makes me feel a whole lot better. So I went to bed with a big smile on my face last night and my kids do that for me quite often. Oh, how good's a wicked laugh? It's one <laughs> thing like when everyone's like, what's one thing you wish you could do? Or one, I'm like, I wish I could sing and I wish I had that laugh that when I laughed, people just laughed because of it. You know, there's, there's something about a wicked laugh. Oh, my daughter's got the, it's, it's acute, but it's also evil at the same time. It's, it's, it's hilarious. 
Thank you so much, Simon. For me personally, like I worked in this space, but I felt like I learned so much today just listening. Yeah, Ali, I really do appreciate you inviting me onto the show and having me on to, to share my story. And I'm often asked, how do you have conversations around mental health? And I think we've just proved or shown everybody how you do it. It's just being open and, and curious and non-judgmental. And it the more you do it, the easier it becomes. So thanks so much for having me on. Thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of Challenges That Change Us. It has been an absolute pleasure having you with us and diving into the world of undiagnosed OCD with our incredible guest, Simon. His journey has been a reminder that sometimes the most profound challenges can go unnoticed for years, but with resilience and determination, we can break down the barriers they create. We hope that this conversation has shed a little bit of light on the misconceptions surrounding OCD and the various themes it can encompass. Before we wrap up, I want to remind you to check out Simon's podcast, Mindful Men, where he continues to share such great insights and stories. If you love this episode as much as we did, please consider subscribing, leaving a review or sharing it with your friends and loved ones. Your support means the world to me and it helps us continue to bring you stories of resilience, growth and human spirit. Until next Monday morning, have an amazing week, guys. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode. 